Biblical prophecy is a funny thing. Most scholars approaching the text with a degree of suspicion tell us that no one was actually predicting the future back then when they were writing these texts. If you don't trust a psychic hotline, in other words, you shouldn't trust this either. Rather, various authors, assuming the pseudonym of beloved prophets like Isaiah, wrote of events that already happened, claiming that these texts were written long ago. It would be like writing about the pandemic now and then claiming I discovered a prophecy about it from a magazine article written in the 80s that predicted it. In short, scholars believe that this portion of Isaiah was written long after Isaiah actually lived, and that its prophecies about the fall of Babylonian Empire and the end of the Hebrew exile had already happened. These aren't really prophecies in the sense that we understand the word. The future has always eluded us, and it always will until it arrives. But while historical prophecies may be suspicious, God's promises are another matter. While history unfolds in time, God's promises are eternal and timeless. And God promises to abide with us always, whatever the future may hold. A reading from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you. O Jacob, he who formed you. O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Whenever I travel, I try to stay at the cheapest motels possible. I mean, I don't care about most of the stuff that you find in those one-star reviews, noisy guests, rooms that smell like cigarette smoke, lousy continental breakfast. I can even give a moldy bathtub a pass. I mean, if I'm just passing through, I can skip a shower or two. I guess I'd rather just stay somewhere memorable than somewhere comfortable, if that makes sense. 
The last time I drove to New England a few years ago, I stayed at a little place in Fraxville, Pennsylvania, called Granny's Inn. I arrived well after midnight, greeted by a crumbling, 15-foot-tall statue of the creepiest woman you have ever seen. Her head wrapped in a babushka, and her hands clutching a pie, her eyes locked in a thousand-yard stare. By her side stood a child with the face of an elderly man, also staring into the distance, his hand clutching a doll with a missing head and missing hands, which looked to have been smashed to pieces. These statues were in poor repair, their paint chipped and faded, and they guarded the place like ancient sentinels. As I pulled into the poorly lit parking lot and saw this monstrosity, I thought to myself, now this is my kind of place. <laughs> like I said, sometimes a memorable journey is preferable to a comfortable one. Of course, that philosophy sort of goes out the window when you're traveling with your six-year-old son. I mean, I don't want to bring him anywhere too sketchy. So when little Levi and I set out on a handful of road trips around the country this summer, I splurged on a few two-star hotels. I was worried enough, as it is, about how he'd manage on a long road trip. He'd never spent more than an hour in the car, and boys his age aren't usually known for their patience. That said, I think Levi actually fared better than I did. He was huddled in the back seat with a giant sleeping bag, his shoes kicked off, watching cartoons and eating Cheetos, while I impatiently navigated the endless miles before us. But still, he continued to ask the inevitable question that was always on my mind. Are we there yet? I had hoped, friends, with all of my heart, that we would have arrived by now, that we would be in a better place than we are. I had hoped come September that we'd be more or less rid of these masks here in worship and able to do more things together indoors. I mean, look around, we're definitely better off than we were a year ago, and I'm grateful for that, but we have to admit that we aren't quite there yet. We aren't quite where we want to be. And looking beyond COVID at the other existential threats that our world continues to struggle with, the climate crisis, racism, inequality, violence, politics, disinformation, and the troubling rise of authoritarian tendencies, we have to acknowledge that most of us are not quite where we want to be. It's been 20 years since 9-11, and nothing has felt quite right since then, has it? We want this trip to be over. Throughout the pandemic, I've often compared our circumstances to those of the Israelites wandering the wilderness with Moses, a 40-year sojourn that frequently found them asking, are we there yet, Moses? Are we there yet? But there is another analogy in Scripture that speaks to our times, that being the Babylonian exile. After the Babylonians seized Jerusalem and tore down Solomon's temple, her people were either taken prisoner in Babylon or exiled to the far corners of the known world. 
They were homeless, unchained from their spiritual axis, left without hope. But Isaiah, declaring that they have suffered long enough, offers them this promise. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. This text has a historical context, but it exists beyond that. It is a timeless promise, and true to that promise, those people came home when the Persian Empire conquered Babylon. They came home and they rebuilt what they lost. It's a promise for a better future. And for them, it arrived. But us, we are still waiting. In exile, in a sense, stuck on a highway with no exits that seems to go on forever. Perhaps the promised future is ours to find rather than something that we sit around and wait for. Maybe our hoped-for Tomorrowland is not a promise at all, but one possible future among many, and that God promises us to accompany us wherever we go. And I believe that the church has a vital role to play in bringing that future to life. I've been thinking a lot these last few months about what the post-pandemic church looks like. As it turns out, we aren't quite there yet. We aren't quite post-pandemic. But in an effort to discern the church's role in this rapidly changing world, I embarked on one of the aforementioned road trips around the Midwest to meet with some of my colleagues that I don't normally get to see very often. My sabbatical this summer afforded me the opportunity to step back and get a little perspective and that was an opportunity that I did not want to waste. But rather than simply relate my colleagues' wisdom to you, I made a little video documentary about my time away, so you can hear them for yourself. Now, before we turn this on, I should warn you that it does feature some throwbacks to the fireside chat videos that I made last year, so fans of those should find this especially resonant, but Hopefully everyone can glean some ecclesiastical wisdom from these interviews with my fellow clergy. Let's roll that tape. This summer, after a year of hard questions, I hit the road in search of answers. The pandemic has changed things, and the church is no exception. But it's easy to miss the forest for the trees and I needed a broader view. So I set out with my son Levi to visit a few colleagues around the Midwest to hopefully learn from their experience and their wisdom before beginning a new year here in Glen Ellen. Are we there yet, Dad? Our first stop was Two Rivers, Wisconsin, to pay a visit to Reverend Dr. Coley Bativia, a pastor who grew up in this very church. For me, one of the hardest things was trying to pastor people in this time of emotional crisis for them and also feeling like I was in emotional crisis myself um, with the pandemic and feeling stressed and anxious about everything all the time. 
Throughout the last year, you know, what would you say were some of the activities that really managed to keep people engaged at your church? So, you know, this year when we couldn't do Christmas caroling, um, we did a Christmas caroling drive-in. So we had been doing um, drive-in sort of style church. So we had a radio transmitter that people could, you know, come up to church and listen in over their radio. Um, so we had a couple people leading um, Christmas carols and then a whole bunch of people on microphones too joining in and people could sit in their cars and sing along and we had... That's awesome. You know, uh, Rob Halford, the singer of Judas Priest, you know, he put out a, uh, a Christmas album last year. Uh, did you guys, you know, sing any of those songs at your uh, Christmas Eve drive-in? We headed west into Minnesota to visit another old friend in St. Paul. Reverend Corinne Ellis also grew up in our church, and I had the opportunity to chat with her and her newborn son, Ori. I think another big um, opportunity that was raised, you know, it was during the pandemic, but being in the Twin Cities, like um, racial justice has been like really in the forefront. And um, the congregation had been had been you know doing book studies and doing some like some tiptoeing into racial justice work pre George Floyd, but post George Floyd, like they're going through a very intensive process with a couple of consultants where 30 people are getting trained to do this um, this racial justice lens sort of audit of the congregation and all of our different programs and and worship and life together. Um, and I think coming back together in person, that's gonna be like even more important. And that feels like something that's on the minds of a lot of people, church or not. And so um, not only is it work that I think is like way overdue and really important, but I also think it could be a strong evangelism tool as well, like to be doing that work really with a lot of integrity and intentionality. Like, seriously? Dude, you are seriously doing that. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. All right. Fred is driving me insane, okay? No, do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I think we have been... Like, really patient with him, really understanding, but he is really getting on my last nerve. I mean, he is such a big baby. I know. Like, he keeps whining, oh, Seth's not here, Seth's not here, and frankly, I think we're, like, doing probably better without him, if you know what I mean, you know, but, you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, is, is he coming to you and whining? Well, he is, I hear him crying outside my office all the time. It's very distracting. I'm not getting a whole lot I, done. I know. It's the worst. Like, I'm not sure what to do about it, but I don't know, maybe at the next staff meeting we should talk about it. Okay. I think we should maybe do a little intervention. Maybe. Just, okay. You know what I mean? I agree. Okay. Thanks for the talk. 
Sorry about your troubles. Yeah. Bye. Our last stop was the Wyzetta Community Church just outside of Minneapolis, where I sat down with the esteemed Reverend Dr. John Ross. Great to be with you again, Seth, in a place where you have preached and people, uh, even from 11 years ago, still remember it. Well, look, I'm sorry about the damage to the sanctuary. The, uh, the fire was, was completely an accident. The pandemic has accelerated a lot of trends in society. What uh, trends do you think it accelerated in the life of the church? The physical attendance in worship was already a challenge. Um, and you know, we, when I entered ministry, the number was at about 2.1. 2.1 times per month, Americans were worshiping 30 years ago. Pre-COVID, that number was about 1.2 times per month, Americans were worshiping. We don't know what the number is yet post-COVID, uh, but we'll see. Where do you see the church putting its energy uh, in the coming months now that people are able to come together again? Uh, I think the biggest area that we will turn our full focus to uh, are children and families. They are the last ones that we're seeing come back from COVID and they are absolutely vital, uh, not just to the future of the church, but to the church right now. stretches out before us. Are we there yet, Dad? It'll be good to be home. But then, maybe you can't ever really go home again. The landscape changes, always, like the scenery outside my window. But come what may, I know we'll face it. Together. me? <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you too, Fred. It's good to see you too. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yes, I am here. I am back. But friends, as you know, I am no hero, and I cannot lead this community alone. Having thought and prayed on this all summer long, it has become clear to me that the church, that all of us have work to do, really important work, not in some distant future, but right now. Churches everywhere are struggling to make sense of these crazy times, trying to discern what we're really about beneath all of the attendance figures and finances and all of the other stuff that we have to spend a lot of time worrying about. In the midst of trying to build a virtual community and adapt to the changes wrought by the virus, we cannot forget our core purpose. We cannot forget why we are here, which is to preach and to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a world where that gospel is twisted, 
so often and so wrongly. It's the church's job to tell it like it is. In a world that spurns critical and scientific thinking, a world that is horrendously unreasonable, it is our job to be radically reasonable. In a world that is fractured by disinformation and lies, it is our job to seek the truth and to speak the truth. Seek the truth and to speak the truth. That is the role of the church in the 21st century, to save souls, if not from the wiles of the devil or from damnation in hell, then from the wiles of inequality, racism, hatred, violence, and hell on earth. When the world falls apart, church is still here and God is still with us calling us to build a better tomorrow shining city on a hill a new Jerusalem and that's not something I can do but maybe it's something we can do together the journey before us is not an easy one and it's less comfortable than a one-star hotel but we aren't called to be comfortable, we're called to be faithful. And as it says in the book of Isaiah, we've been created to glorify God. And we glorify God not with platitudes and cheap faith, but with our deeds and with our love. While Levi and I were driving through a small town in rural Wisconsin, we pulled off the highway for a while to explore the back roads and maybe, hopefully, find something for dinner. We ended up in a small town somewhere. I don't remember what it was called, but I remember that we drove past this little house that had a sign out front which read, Jesus is greater than COVID. Now, while I can't exactly argue with that statement in a literal sense, I didn't care for what it implied. It struck me as a kind of magical thinking, as if to say that one's faith alone could protect them from the virus. But that's just another platitude. It's not the way the world works. It doesn't reflect reality. And the church has to be honest and real, truthful about the world that we live in. Magical thinking isn't going to cut it anymore, if it ever did. Needless to say, I decided not to stop for dinner in that town, which was a really tough call because they had this place right down the street called Chubby's Steak and Seafood. Sounded right up my alley. But you know, with my unvaccinated six-year-old in the back seat, I just couldn't do it. And as we gave up searching for dinner there and got back on the highway, Levi reminded me that he was starving. Are we there yet? He asked for the hundredth time. Are we there yet? No. But if we follow the teachings of Jesus, we will always be going in the right direction. The journey might not be comfortable, but it will surely be memorable. Amen.